Welcome to TV7 Israel's podcast. We invite you to listen and share our latest content from Israel and the region. Hello uh, from Jerusalem to the second part of our Watchmen Talk series, a conversation with Dr. Uzi Arad, a former senior Mossad official and later head of the Israeli National Security Staff. A lot of experience in academia as well and a master of grant strategy and working with alliances. Dr. Arad, we spoke about Mossad in our first uh, conversation. And obviously, you uh, have a lot of lessons learned from both your Mossad days and later regarding how grant strategy is implemented or first uh, thought through uh, at the highest level and uh, the way it pertains to alliances without which Israel could not survive? Well, you know, the concept of grand strategy has become very fashionable in the last decade or so because also of what is happening in the world. And when people try to understand what is the new order, the international order, and how do nations navigate in this world of ever-increasing uh, convulsions, uncertainties, and so forth. You speak about recently, yes. but uh, you also commemorated most recently the bicentennial of Napoleon Bonaparte's death. Well, you can say that when you, when you look at even at that, you, you're so right. Do, and when you look at the career of Napoleon, which is now being reviewed and so forth, you notice that the poor guy was not really an aggressor. He had to fight six or so coalitions. And the reason why he was ultimately defeated, although he was a brilliant strategist, was because he, the, the coalitions outpowered him in spite of his brilliance, in spite of his ability to try to break their ranks or reach to the field before the group together. In a way, he was doomed. And now the history of Napoleon is defined by his wars under so-and-so coalitions. Now, what did the word coalition mean? It was the coalition of the monarchies, of the, the states at the time. The word we have today is alliances. Now, when we look, if we look, at, the, uh, we look at the superpowers, no superpower claims to be an island unto itself, except for Britain, perhaps, but... America always said there is a new book called The Shield of, the Ali- of, of America, in fact, are the alliances. The Cold War was the management of two big alliances, NATO, which was the Western alliance, and the Warsaw Pact, which was the competing alliance. And, and, and the alliances were genuine. And in fact, NATO won the most glorious victory of an alliance by having reached its objective without fighting or firing even one shot. And Israel is considered a major non-NATO ally. Yes. Now, the truth of the matter, the question for Israel was, how could we survive here when we are surrounded by so many hostile countries? And we were alone. In fact, we were not really alone because we had some relationship with the superpowers at the time. In fact, the nation alliance we had was with the British. In the First World War, you had Jewish regiments 
fighting in Gallipoli and elsewhere as the mule drivers, uh, which was the initial of a Jewish military presence fighting under the British flag. In the Second World War, it was the Jewish Brigade fighting as a Jewish Brigade in Italy. And after the war... Your family had uh, representatives there. Uh, in most many Israelis, we all have traces that take us back to all kinds of places. But look at the uh, superpower game in which we became involved. Who helped us in the War of Independence to defeat the Egyptians? The Soviets! through the supply, the Czech arms supply, at the time when America had an embargo on arms to Israel, which lasted well into the 60s. And who did we ally ourselves, you know, inch by inch, with the British before and after, and with the French? And we did what alliance seldom do, which is the highest form of an alliance. We went to war together. Dr. So, Dr. Arad, fast forward to to the present and to, to the to present, the... but let me uh, talk about the fact that the Mossad was involved throughout those years in, in crafting the regional alliances, which traditionally was our encirclement, periphery, periphery alliance to encircle the Arab world by non-Arab countries with which we were allies at the time, which was Iran, Turkey, and Ethiopia. So, so just... Uh, to illustrate, there was a hostile ring around Israel led by Egypt yes. to include Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, Iraq. And what Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister, came up with was the idea of leapfrogging yes. this ring to the ring that you mentioned, the outer ring. But let me just underscore, because it goes back into the 80s. Ben-Gurion also, also wanted to have a defense treaty with America, which the Americans always denied us. But that is another matter. The peripheral alliance, remember, Egypt was our primary military enemy. We fought Egypt in 48, 56, 67, 73. But then something happens in the late 70s. Almost overnight, Iran is overtaken by a revolution, which is Islamic, anti-Israeli, anti-Western, uh, violent, and since then, Iran is not the Iran that prevailed before. But we also, in those same years, we make that breakthrough with Egypt. And we have a peace treaty with our biggest military enemy till then. The combination of these two things happening changed the entire configuration of the Middle East. So much so. But also, that Israel, today, Israel invades Lebanon and uh, becomes boxed down in a quagmire. Which is a, a residue of the strategy of allying ourselves with discriminated minorities, be them Christians in Lebanon, Kurds in Iraq, and so forth. But today, look at the irony of history. Today, our main security threat is Persia. What on hell brought us into this? I can understand the Arab-Israeli conflict. After all, it was a territorial dispute. It was inescapable. But is it inescapable that we would back down into this ever-increasing uh, friction with Iran and now making coalitions with the Sunni Arab world? So please answer your own question. The answer is that yes. Alliances is often the rule of the, we do have to have alliances, and our current alliances 
take into, into account that under the current circumstances, we have alliances with Sunni, Arab, and non-Arab countries. Now, you... But I do hope that the change will take place, as always does, uh, with Iran. Now, in the uh, late uh, 1990s, uh, when uh, you were um, Prime Minister Netanyahu's policy advisor, you were one of the uh, generators of uh, the first National Security Council, later to be renamed National Security Staff. And then, a decade later, you headed it. If you go back to square one and ask yourself rationally, coldly, not emotionally, how can we negotiate with Iran so that the so-called existential threat of the Iranian nuclear project be taken away and Israelis can breathe more freely and know that they can go about their business without a sword hanging over their heads? Well, this is now the challenge of statecraft, the challenge of managing a problem, which is the problem of preventing Iran from having nuclear weapons, because that is clearly the case Nuclear weapons in the hands of Iran may bring about nuclear ha- uh, weapons elsewhere in the Middle East, would be a destabilizing condition. This is a goal to which Europeans and Americans and so forth are also declared to bring about. So we have to handle that. Uh, it's a long process because uh, in Iran, you have now an unusually militant and sometimes aggressive uh, regime. Uh, so I cannot see an immediate change in the course of things. But knowing history and knowing the fluidity of things and knowing things that knowing that consequences do take place, I'm not, I would not be surprised if in a generation time from now, you would see a different condition. For example, Iran would not become nuclear and would benefit greatly from that. If it will become nuclear, it would be very disadvantageous to Iran. But let's cross that bridge when we come to it. But how do you go about it? Uh, do you start with a track to um, series of meetings between experts and ex-officials uh, so that uh, there is uh, no uh, veneer of formality about it and then slowly work your way up to the no, official level? No, in today's world... Uh, in today's globalized world, uh, I think that getting into having access is no longer a problem. Uh, unless you decide not to. But if you want to engage discreetly, it can be done with anybody, anywhere. The problem, of course, are the, uh, the degree of hostility that may exist and the divergence of interests. But there is also the problem of various actors various chiefs of state suspecting that the other side, in this case Israel, would leak it or would not guard the secret uh, professionally enough, and that domestically they will pay a price for the very fact of meeting with those infidels. Yes, it is true that uh, sometimes domestic politics play a role, and leaders have to take into account the visibility of things that they fear, this kind of thing. Yes, it is true 
So we now live in a world in which the judicious management of truth becomes very difficult. So this is a great challenge. But knowing that, I would argue, for example, that we should not make so much of avoiding contact because it would legitimize. For example, the Hamas in Gaza. What was that pretension? You know, they are really bad guys, believe you me, in so many ways. But if it is opportune to have quiet arrangements with them, it would not imply recognition. It just implies that we need in contact. And one should not make too much of that. There is a difference between having a contact which is useful, which have been done in the past between belligerents even at the height of war, because it was expedient. And to make of it something appear as if it implies recognition. So if you were to banalize, so to speak, that the fact that you do have a contact means nothing, it is just a useful contact. As we say in Hebrew, echrach bal Necessary. Even, even. Let, me, let me tell you something which I, 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 I hesitate to say. But it's got to be said. Even at the height of the, of the Second World War, did not the Haganah had emissaries who talked to Eichmann in Germany, in uh, Hungary? And the revisionists tried to have their own contacts but with then, not, and, Nazi and What did they negotiate about? They negotiate lives for trucks because it was thought that it would help. And I would add that, that if a Mossad was then in existence, I would have been doing that job. And the grandchild of one of these emissaries is now about to enter the Israeli cabinet uh, if their side... Because of- it is such an emotional thing, and I'm not entering into the debate of Uh, the the action of of Kast, who was a Jewish leader. But we had envoys, Joel Brandt and the like, who was briefed in, in Constantinople before crossing and talking to the murderers. But looking at it from another angle, isn't there a danger that if the Mossad chief goes to the prime minister and tells him, listen, I have a fantastic channel into the Saudis, into the Iranians, whoever, and I can bring you a draft peace treaty. And the prime minister says, no, don't do it, because domestically I will have to pay, for instance, by withdrawing from the territories. I don't want you to go down that route. Well, Of course, it is the elected leaders of the country who decide what is the foreign policy goal that they are pursuing. And presumably, usually they aspire to do what's best for the country, but all too often they also think about their own politics. And that's legitimate to a certain point, because I would like to argue that when it comes to lives, and as national security means, I would expect my leaders to take the non-political view, uh, but to take the national view. But uh, if the chief of intelligence knew that the prime minister is decided against having, say, a peace treaty with Saudi Arabia, because that may come at the expense of his 
view on the Palestinian issue, you should push for that because it is against. The, he knows that the Prime Minister would not support it even if he had a glorious agreement on this. Let, let's take another topic uh, in, in which uh, you are very well versed, and that is um, nuclear strategy in the Middle East. Um, you may um, believe that the time is ripe for negotiations with Iran on its own nuclear uh, pursuit. But they may bring up what they uh, would claim is Israel's mirror image. They would say, why only us? Let's talk about proliferation in the Middle East in general. Is that in Israel's interest, or would Israel be better by letting these that, dogs that lie? That is not the current issue on the agenda. For the last eight years or so, what has been on the agenda was negotiations, and then it ensued in an agreement between Iran on one hand and five plus one powers on the other hand about curtailing the Iranian program and uh, making it more difficult for Iran to come to nuclear weapons that the Iranians were claiming not to want and that they were committed not to want because they were signatories of the NPT. They violated the NPT, but they still had to abide by it. And that is what is going on. And I am, I, unlike the position taken by the Prime Minister, myself and others who have been uh, knowing about this, argued that the agreement, uh, GCPOA, uh, reached in 2015, was not an empty uh, product. It had limitations, it put limitations on Iran, and it did slow down the Iranian advancement towards possibility of nuclear weapons. They did it so because, so as to remove the sanctions. They did it under the pressure of the sanctions. Now, the prime minister has had many reservations about the loopholes and shortfalls of that agreement. True, one could have possibly negotiated a tighter or fuller but this does not mean that it was not worthwhile. And the worthwhileness of this was demonstrated after 2018, when Trump, for his own reasons, and our prime minister, for his reasons, supported the American distancing itself from the agreement, only to see Iran then feeling free to then do things that it committed himself not to do. And now it's back closer to the Iranian, to that breakout time, than it was ever under the agreement. So that is why, yes, I support with the United States, with the negotiators, to, to have those negotiations, but to strengthen and prolong the agreement and to close some of those deficiencies effectively, genuinely, and to do that in a pragmatic way. But taking it a step further or sideways, there is always the uh, uh, review conferences every five years. The IAEA deals with it. What happens when Israel's enemies and even some of its peace partners led by Egypt say, let's talk about the Israeli nuclear program or arsenal? Is it worthwhile for Israel to put these cards on the table too? Well, as you know, this matter used to show up on those review 
sometimes under the initiative of Egypt, of all countries. Um, and usually the result of those conferences was that, in fact, there was a majority of countries that understood the Israeli position on this issue, which remains a very low-profile position. You know, our position is sometimes defined as ambiguity, but essentially it's a policy of being responsible, of uh, demonstrating that Israel does not threaten anybody, doesn't boast about anything, we never did any testing, one, and we never even uh, admitted to any capacity. This is what is being kept ambiguous. And uh, that policy is respected by our friends and by the international community. And that is why I think it would be understood also in the future. In a phrase taken from another matter in the 90s, in the Pentagon, don't ask, don't tell. This had to do with the service of gay personnel yes. in the um, US armed forces. But as long as this issue is off the table, you uh, believe that it is best for all. It's, it has is, it is proven to be a position that our allies and friends understand. They know the facts. They certainly know the world. They know the norms. They know Israel's particular security circumstances. They also know that the NPT, of which Israel is not a signatory, uh, the NPT has shown its deficiencies. All too often, we had countries that did subscribe to the NPT only to cheat. Israel never joined the NPT, and we never cheated. But... Um one of the cheaters was Iraq at the time. Yes. And perhaps Iran started its own nuclear project, not the, the, the one originally uh, the, uh, the late Shah tried his hand uh, to, into, but the uh, revolutionary Islamic regime, because it feared Iraq. Now yes. Iraq is no longer there. Saddam Hussein is no longer there. There is no rationale for the Iranian uh, nuclear project except for Israel, and perhaps they don't want the bomb. Perhaps they know that if they get to the threshold, they will be bombed out of existence. Well, you know, you're absolutely right. Uh, what the, the impetus to go on, a, on a, advancing the program in the 90s was under the impression of what happened to Iraq, uh, and that program was moved on until the early uh, about uh, 2002. Then they tried to build the secret enrichment facility in Natanz, and they were caught in flagrante. That was a clear violation, and that led to condemnation. A few years later, they were caught again with the Fordow enrichment facility, and that was also a breach. That is why they got sanctioned, because of breaking agreements, but we Israelis cannot help noticing that around us, there have been countries who tried to get nuclear and almost succeeded, like Iraq. And the Libyan affair was also a very sobering thing. And even the Syrian affair, the fact that there was a nuclear reactor built in such proximity to us, with us learning about it only a very early, uh, late point, is is very sobering thing. So we think that uh, the fact that there may be hostile countries to Israel that do not necessarily 
observe their commitments renders us a little bit uh, suspicious of the efficacy of uh, such uh, such uh, uh, limitations. And we have to hedge. What we do is hedging. Dr. Arad, uh, from uh, 2009 through uh, 2011, you uh, headed the national security staff. And in the uh, two minutes we have, could you please compress your lessons from that period and what you also researched about earlier and later periods regarding national security staff work at the prime minister's office? Um, it was supposed to help the entire cabinet made up of some eight ministers. Yeah. It's very simply said, very difficult to do. Just like America, just like Britain, just like France, Canada, Australia, we need the National Security Council. It should do what national security councils do, which is often integration, doing things at the national level. There are differences, but there are similarities. It must be done. Secondly, there is need for an upper National Intelligence Council, which would be close but separate from the policy thing. Both things are still deficient in Israel. The National Intelligence, uh, National Security Council is now handling the COVID thing, which is as far removed from the security things as we could. It is very central. I'm pleased by that, that the prime minister is relying on them. But have they really... Are they really fulfilling all the functions that National Security Councils do? The answer is not yet. As to the National Intelligence Council, we don't have that at all. That's bad. Why can't we be like all modern countries? Well, by law, and you were, of course, um, very central to drafting this, the bill which became uh, the law, the head of the National Security Council, uh, appointed by the cabinet as well as his uh, deputy, should be a professional with some loyalty to the prime minister, but not personal loyalty, uh, which overwhelms his other responsibilities. But this has not been the case recently. So, you, you know, what I learned, uh, as should have been evident to everybody, it all depends on the qualities and style of the number one himself. It is so also in America. The American NSC has seen its ups and downs, depending on the nature of the head of the NSC, who are different of different styles, but at the same time also by the inclinations of the American president. Here in Israel, for the last 12 years, we have the same person. Well, it's his style, and much depends on him. I wish he would have acted differently. Dr. Ruzi Arad, uh, former senior Mossad official, former head of the National Security Staff, thank you for these two uh, conversations, and hopefully we will also have a third and perhaps a fourth one shortly. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us in another TV7 Israel podcast. For more content, visit our website at tv7israelnews.com or follow us on social media. 